Hello, everybody. I'm Howie Hawkins. I was the Green Party and the Socialist Party candidate for president in 2020. And this podcast, Green Socialist Notes, is about continuing to educate and organize around the eco-socialist program that Angela Walker, my running mate, and I ran on. So I thought today I'd talk a little bit about the big picture of national politics and how important it is that the Greens run a presidential candidate and hopefully a lot of candidates for uh, down ballot races. And, you know, I've always emphasized that we're going to build the party by through local elections and building that political base and then be more competitive in state legislative and, and house elections. But uh, if we can run good campaigns for house and even U.S. Senate, I think we need to. And, you know, the situation right now is Biden is moving to the right. And he thinks he's going to get the swing voters in the middle. But a lot of those people are going to say, well, if you're offering what the Republicans are, maybe I'll go with the Republicans. And progressives are going to be disenchanted, alienated, and maybe not vote. And, the, you know, let's start with Biden's foreign policy. It's so damn hypocritical. I mean, I've supported, for the most part, their policy with regard to Ukraine supporting Ukraine's right to defend itself from a Russian invasion. But then they turn around and they support the Israeli raid in Janine in, in, in the northern uh, Palestinian West Bank. Um, and that's why Israel is pushing more settlements into the West Bank and talking about annexing those settlements and maybe the whole damn West Bank. And so there's obviously a contradiction there and hypocrisy. And it's not just uh, Israel and Palestine. It's all over the world. And that hypocrisy undermines the support for Ukraine because people see the hypocrisy around the world of U.S. foreign policy. Now, there's a world of difference between providing military aid and arms sales to Ukraine for its self-defense as opposed to giving military support to authoritarian governments for their domestic repression in their own imperialist adventures. Um, so let's look at a couple examples of this. The arms sales and military aid to Saudi Arabia and UAE over the last five years is even larger than what we've given to Ukraine or is in the pipeline at this point. And they've used that to intervene militarily in Yemen, uh, Yemen, which has you know, been devastating, as well as Libya and Sudan, where there's now a conflict between the two uh, military factions and the people's revolution that threw out the old dictator and reached a compromise with the military leadership who have since been shut aside by the military coup a couple years ago. Um, you know, the U.S. is dealing with the military people rather than uh, supporting, you know, the popular revolution. Same thing in Morocco. Military aid and training to Morocco which is occupying what used to be called the Spanish Sahara, which the people there call the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic, and they want independence. So that's another annexation. We're opposing Russia trying to annex Ukraine, but we're helping Israel, we're helping Morocco, and we're supporting Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates in their interventions abroad. Military aid and arms sales to India, which has become more and more Hindu supremacist oppressing its Muslim and Sikh and other non-Hindu communities, as well as, you know, the poor people generally. Uh, and then there's Turkey, which is, you know, a NATO ally, but is intervening and occupying northern Syria, going after the Kurds. Their repression of the Kurds in Turkey is despicable. They're also intervening in Libya. And we continue to sell arms, provide military aid, and uh, don't really you know, get after them for their intervention in a neighboring country and occupation. Uh, and that's a NATO ally. Rwanda and Uganda, they've sent their armed forces into the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And they get U.S. military aid and training. And they're in the Congo in that terrible war that has, you know, cost millions of lives. And it's all about minerals and who gets to exploit them. We support the dictator in Haiti by decree now and hasn't elections dismissed the parliament or the authoritarian government in Peru that took power last year. 
And I could go on and on, but we are providing military aid, arms sales, as well as basing U.S. forces in the countries of authoritarian governments across Latin America, Africa, and Asia. And they're suppressing their own populations. So there's a problem there. And peace and progressive-minded people really want to see an alternative to that. And I would add it's a shame that the authoritarian left and some pacifist groups aligned with them who oppose arms to Ukraine, which is what the Russian imperialists want, are silent on Russia's imperialist looting, you know, in plain daylight of gold, diamonds, minerals, oil and gas in Libya, Sudan, Mali, and the Central African Republic. And they're not organizing protests like they do against arms to Ukraine, against arms to Israel, over $4 billion a year, uh, to Saudi Arabia and the UAE, and, and what they've been doing in Yemen. And, you know, all those instances I mentioned. So U.S. imperialism has many policies we should target, but the focus for some of these groups is on support for Ukraine's resistance to Russian imperialism. And frankly, I consider these people core warriors. They take the sides in conflicts with of states in conflict with the U.S., and they practice the geopolitics of picking sides in competitive capitalist blocks of states instead of the class politics of supporting the exploited and oppressed in every country. And these other capitalist states are not going to stop U.S. imperialism, even if we lose these conflicts. We've been losing every war since World War II, pretty much. I mean, with exceptions like Grenada and maybe Panama. You know, most places we don't come away with a military victory. But that doesn't stop the military-industrial complex. You know, they just want wars. It doesn't matter whether we win or lose. And if they go on, they keep making money on it. So it's not these other so-called anti-imperialist capitalist states that's going to stop U.S. imperialism or imperialism generally. It's got to be an international socialist solidarity, not of the capitalist states. Is That's what we need to defeat U.S. and all imperialisms. You know, and, and most progressive and peace-minded people in this country support Ukraine. And if some of these groups on the left in the peace movement are perceived as apologists for Russian imperialism, the left in the peace movement are going to alienate what should be their base. Uh, I think progressive people will support a consistent anti-imperialism that opposes both Russian and U.S. imperialism and all imperialisms. And uh, so that's one area where we certainly need an alternative to what we're getting from, you know, Biden, not to mention the Republicans. Um, and then there are other issues. And Biden's whole campaign strategy now is to move to the right in a vain attempt to woo swing voters. Immigration. He's enacting Trump's anti-immigrant policy, anti policies. The policies are there, just less anti-immigrant rhetoric. But it's still uh, inhumane and mean-spirited. On crime, his answer to crime is more federal funding for cops instead of attacking the social risks of crime and inequality and poverty, that's street crime, and then corporate crime, which is rampant. And there's no strong effort by this administration to rein in that. Social security, I mean, this is a huge issue. You know, the latest report from the uh, Trust Fund for Social Security says it will run out of money by 2033, at which point they'll have to cut benefits uh, by 23% to 77% of the full benefit uh, if something doesn't change. And what Biden should be campaigning for is to scrap the cap, the $160,000 limit that, you know, high income people, they don't have to pay the social security tax over that. So CEOs making millions of dollars a year pay maybe 1% of their salary, pay social security taxes on 1% of their salary by regular, while regular working people pay 100% of their uh, salaries and wages, they pay that social security tax. Um, if we scrapped the cap and just taxed all income uh, at the same rate uh, that everybody pays up to $160,000, social security would be well-funded as far into the future as we can see. And there's an issue that, uh, you know, I, Biden could make some hay on, but what you get from the Democrats, I'm getting, you know, you know, scam voicemails, spam voicemails, you know, saying, you know, the Republicans are going after Social Security. 
But what are the re- Democrats offering as an alternative? They don't have one. And in healthcare, you know, they're not for Medicare for all, universal healthcare. They are implementing the privatization of Medicare and Medicaid, uh, you know, so that everybody, they want to force everybody onto these privately managed plans that are funded publicly, but that goes to the private profits of these managed care organizations. And then we just had the debt ceiling. It cut food and rental assistance, education programs, other social programs, but it spared any cuts to the Pentagon and made it easier for the wealthy to avoid taxes because it cut funding to the IRS. And that was, you know, Biden splitting the difference with the Republicans. And then climate. I mean, we're in the middle of a week where every day is a record temperature uh, in the history of record keeping. And, you know, from what we can derive from, you know, studies previous. And so this interglacial period now is having the hottest days it's ever had. And instead, the Biden administration has permitted more oil and gas drilling than Trump did in the same period. It's not stepping up to stop new fossil fuel infrastructure, like the upgraded versions of Enbridge Lines 3 and 5 in the Great Lakes for oil from the uh, Bakken deposit in North Dakota and the Alberta uh, dirty oil sands uh, oil. Um, It approved that Mountain Valley pipeline in the debt ceiling deal. Um, And the climate program that we got in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which I've been calling the Build Back Badly Act, is nothing but public subsidies for corporations and consumers to incentivize clean energy, which is hit or miss and more costly than directly doing it through the public sector. It's not close to the eco-social Green New Deal that we've campaigned for, where these things will be done through the public sector, coordinated plan and uh, with enough funds to really do it. And that's what we need now in this, in this climate emergency. And then generally, Biden is still pushing this bipartisanship. He's the guy that's going to unite us. And what he's doing is normalizing the extremist authoritarians in the Republican Party who tried to overthrow his election. And this Republican neo-fascism needs to be defeated, not compromised with. And that's where Biden is actually reinforcing right-wing policies and arguments by, you know, normalizing them instead of fighting them. And what that does is reinforce the rights appeal to the very swing voters that Biden is trying to appeal to. And in doing so, he's going to lose progressive voters who are alienated by this move to the right. Uh, He'll fail to gain the swing voters anyway, and he's going to hand the presidency back to the Republicans. This is a losing playbook, and the Democrats ought to have figured this out by now because they've lost many presidential elections with this kind of, you know, move to the right, to the center kind of politics. Mondale, the fiscal hawk, Dukakis, the technocrat, Kerry and Clinton, the war hawks and Clinton's neoliberal economic policies, you know, so identified with corporate power. Um, you know, one exception was Gore, and, you know, he inherited the Clinton legacy, but toward the end of the summer, he started with, uh, came out with the theme of the people versus the powerful, a populist theme, and he, for the only time in the campaign, he uh, caught up and actually went ahead of Bush, but he was close to Bush throughout the fall with those kind of uh, messaging. And in fact, we know he won, but it was stolen by the Supreme Court stopping the recount in Florida. We know he won because media organizations went back and counted all the ballots every which way, and Gore actually did win Florida, but that's another story. Obama lucked out. He had a progressive image, and the Republicans were toast, you know, when he ran in 2008 after the Iraq war and the uh, Hurricane Katrina fiascos. But, you know, that's not the situation this time. Biden... He's got to defend what he did, and he's not really emphasizing what few progressive things he did or promising more. He's saying, you know, like he did in 2020, he almost lost that election, thanks to the Electoral College. You know, he's going to unite the soul of America and find reconciliation between the neo-fascists. And that's that's what the neoliberals do. They're just fueling neo-fascism. So that's why I argue that a progressive challenge like Cornell West can mount, Uh, from Biden's left 
could shift the whole political debate in this country and force Biden and the Democrats to advance some progressive solutions to compete for progressive votes that they're otherwise going to lose. And a model here is what happened in 1948. When Truman had to steal Henry Wallace's domestic program, and when he did so, he won a stunning upset against Dewey, who had been leading throughout the campaign. Because that's what's popular with people. They, they, they support these you know, progressive domestic economic policies. And I would say I've seen this in other races. The Greens aren't spoilers. We improve elections. In my congressional district around Syracuse, the only two times a Democrat has won that congressional district in the last 50 years is when there was a Green in the race. And I was the candidate one time, Ursula Rosen was another time, and we were told we're splitting the vote, we're going to elect a Republican, but this is actually the only time the Democrat won, because we forced the Democrat to deal with our demands. And the Democrat came out looking better, because they had to move our way a bit, than they were when they were just running against the right-wing Republican. When they moved to the right, they lost their base, because they weren't offering their base anything. So when the Democrats ran centrist campaigns that didn't excite their base because it wasn't the green forcing them to deal with uh, policies and demands to their left, they, they lost. So, you know, I would sum this up by saying, you know, greens don't spoil elections. We improve elections. And so I hope in uh, 2024, we have a lot of candidates to improve those elections. So with that, let's uh, get to the questions and comments. Gary Chet Campbell, have any state Green Party Cornell West ballot access petition drive started? Yes, they have. Uh, Utah, Missouri, um, there's one more that I've just seen uh, in, in Green listservs be discussed. Missouri, Utah, and what's the other one? I forget. Um, and in many states, we can start right now, and we should. So, um, that, that's going to be key. I think, uh, you know, if, you know, Cornell West has a lot more celebrity than I did, hopefully we'll attract more money and support. Um, this is an election where it's not a referendum on Trump so much. It's a referendum on Biden. So people may be more open to a third party challenge from the left. Um, but that's going to be important, you know, getting uh, the resources into these petition drives. So our ticket of the Green Party can be on the ballot in as many states as possible. <clears throat> Steve Welser, I'm advocating that the Green Party of New Jersey recruit candidates to run in every congressional district. There are 12. Well, that's ambitious, and I applaud your uh, ambition. Uh, if we can get that, we can get our Green Party column on all ballots in the state. Oh, I, even without the presidential candidate? Um, I'm not sure how that works. I, I do know that I think in New Jersey, it's very hard to get a permanent state ballot line because you have to, I think, get a percentage of the vote in, in the state assembly races. But um, the only thing I would say is I think, you know, if you can run 12, great, but they should be, you know, quality candidates. It's better to, uh, you know, run a good campaign than to run a lousy campaign with a candidate that doesn't represent us well. That hurts us in the long run. But uh, I hope you can pull off 12 congressional candidates. That would be great. Andrew Hager. Howie, I'm a left-leaning centrist, and I'm disgusted with the direction of our country. Biden and Trump both being shameless, shameless displays of presidency. Who would you recommend for next election? Well, at this point, I'm, I'm supporting uh, Cornell West for the Green nomination. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I have some differences with them. Uh, hopefully, over time, we can, you know, find more consensus on them. But, uh, it's not about finding the perfect candidate. It's about finding a candidate on the independent left who can represent us well in uh, almost all respects. I think Cornell 
is the best one we've got at this point. Via email, response to U.S. supplying cluster bombs to Ukraine. That's really tough. On the one hand, these bombs have been banned uh, by an international treaty that over 100 countries have signed. Uh, most of the NATO countries have signed it. I think all of them but the U.S. Ukraine has not signed it either, neither has Russia. And Russia has been using this against civilian targets, apartment buildings and whatnot, since the start of the war. Uh, you may remember that attack on the train station in Kramatorsk, where people were lining up to get out of Dodge, away from the, the bombing, and they threw a cluster uh, bomb in there and killed 60 people and injured over 100. So Russia's been using these. They're all over the battlefield. Now, where Ukraine wants to use these is to attack the entrenched defenses, uh, particularly in Zaporizhia, the southern front, uh, which is already heavily mined. Um, the concern with cluster munitions is that uh, not all of them explode. A cluster bomb is, before it hits the ground, it, it, it opens up and, and scatters a bunch of smaller bombs in a wide area. And the problem is a lot of them are duds. Uh, you know, they say the Russian cluster bombs are 30 or 40% duds. The U.S. is claiming that what they're sending is only 2.5% duds. The manufacturer claims 1%. It's less, but there's still duds out there. And then over time, you know, when the war is over, people go out and they farm or kids pick them up. It look like toys and they get blown up. Um, so there's going to have to be massive uh, demining and cleaning of these battlefields after the war. So the question is, uh, do the cluster bombs make it that much worse, particularly in Zaporizhia, where Ukraine is likely to use them to attack the entrenched fortifications of the Russians? And that area is so heavily mined that uh, it doesn't seem to me it's going to make that much difference. Um, so that's the positive side. And, and the other, the, the most important reason Ukraine needs them is they're running out of regular munitions. And the U.S. has ramped up its production of those uh, artillery shells, but they're not going to be at a sufficient level till next year. So one of the reasons that the U.S. wants to provide these cluster bombs is that it will fill the gap in the meantime. And I think it's a powerful argument if they're telling us the truth. Uh, if, if Ukraine is without artillery munitions, they're vulnerable to a counterattack by Russia to take more Ukrainian territory. Um, so that's the positive side. The negative side is uh, you're not taking the high road by using these. Although Ukraine had some leftover from Soviet times that they've used. Um, and uh, you know, really, we should get into that uh, that treaty against the use of these weapons. So that's sort of the on the one hand, on the other. At this point, um, I'm not ready to campaign against them. Uh, although I hate to see this as a you know gap in the munitions thing, um, but I think you know it's the lesser evil of uh, you know them not having the Ukrainians not having munitions to defend themselves versus using these munitions, which are uh, weapons that should be uh, abolished. So I know that the Ukraine solidarity movement, there was a discussion in Europe over a Zoom call this morning. People were divided on it. Uh, the, what I've seen on Ukraine solidarity listservs in this country is people are divided on it. Um, so that's where it's at. Steve Welser, try to meet violence with violence and you get massive destruction and death. One of these days, a country should try passive resistance. Yeah, you know, uh, I know a Ukrainian, and we got his poster up here in the office, Basil Shahadi, who uh, was a filmmaker. He was here at Syracuse University on a Fulbright scholarship. And he, he was a uh, Syrian leftist. He had uh, participated in protests against Assad even before the 2011 uprising. Um, he's the kind of guy that uh, his hero was uh, Che, 
He had a motorcycle named Lenin, and he drove it from Damascus all the way to India across the battlefields of Iraq and Afghanistan. He was a kid with a lot of, I guess, either foolishness or courage. Um, and then he came to Syracuse, and he was filming us at Occupy that year. And he also made a film called, uh, what was it called, Songs of... You can look him up on Wikipedia. The last time I looked at biographies, good. Basil Shahadi. And he made this film where he interviewed Eric Chenoweth, who's argued that uh, revolutions are, you know, more successful and less violent when they consciously take uh, uh, a nonviolent approach. And I think, you know, the data shows that. Uh, but then when I think of Syria, when you have such a ruthless dictator, Basel was killed by you know, the uh, Assad forces mortar fire. He'd gone back to teach people how to, you know, make videos to document what was going on. And he believed the resistance should be nonviolent. He thought it would be more effective. There were other prominent uh, activists in Ukraine who felt the same thing. And they were grabbed by the uh, Assad regime and thrown into prison and tortured to death. So, you know, sometimes I think uh, it's probably the best strategy, certainly when you're trying to make social change within your country. Uh, but, you know, I ra Syria raises questions for me. And then um, when you're invaded by a country like Russia that considers the Ukrainians uh, to not really exist or to be subhuman or inferior versions of Slavs like the Russians and dehumanizes them and vilifies them, uh, which, you know, that's what happens when you get genocide. The people being killed are considered less than human. When you have a situation like that, uh, will nonviolence resistance work? And I have my doubts. So it's an important argument, and I think we have to look at each struggle on its own terms to figure out what the best approach is. Howie, uh, Frankie Lee. Howie, what chance is there for new peace talks in Ukraine? Well, where they're at right now, the last thing we've heard recently from uh, the Russian side is they're ready to have a ceasefire and negotiate as long as the territories they occupy, those five oblasts or provinces, are not on the negotiating table. And of course, Ukraine's position is we're ready for a ceasefire to negotiate the peaceful withdrawal of Russian troops from Ukrainian territory. And that's the standstill. Now, what else is going on? China has offered to uh, uh, broker, and I think they may play a role. They have said that uh, Russia has no right to be in Ukraine. On the other hand, they say the West should stop sending arms to Ukraine. Um, so they're in a position where I don't think anybody's happy with them. Lula, the Pope, uh, those African countries that visited there have, have put forward similar ideas um, and, you know, haven't made a breakthrough in terms of getting people to, to talk. Um, and then we have reports, which Russian state media says are all false, but uh, I'm, I'm inclined to believe them. And that is that uh, non-governmental foreign policy establishment elites, Richard Haas, who's been the president of foreign policy relations, uh, Council on Foreign Relations, and his uh, writing partner who wrote an article to this effect. And the ar article said, you know, U.S. NATO should support Ukraine through this counteroffensive, but then in the fall, negotiations, and they're willing to support a, a land for peace deal. And the reports are that these guys met with Russia's foreign minister, Lavrov, uh, I guess it was last April, if I have the date right, yeah, in April, pretty recently, uh, when he was in uh, New York for a meeting at the UN. And that there are similar back channel uh, uh, discussions going on with Russia. Uh, Jake Sullivan, no, yeah, it was either Jake Sullivan or the CIA director Burns, or maybe both, are reported to have had similar discussions with the Russians. Um, so what I would say is there are talks going on behind the scenes. I mean, we've got prisoner exchanges. We've got the grain deal. Um, and I think both sides are exploring 
uh, probing each other for what might be possible. So I think, you know, they're at an impasse in terms of what Ukraine and Russia want, but there are talks going on. And um, we'll just have to see how that develops. Um, there are just a lot of variables in play. So that, that's that's my understanding of where things are at right now. Email response to U.S. supplying cluster bombs to Ukraine. I think I just answered that. Um, I don't think I need to answer it again. It'll be on the tape. If you missed it, go back when it's uh, online. Uh, perspective on the looming Teamster strike. Well, they seem to have resolved almost all the issues. Come to settlements. A lot of the supplements, you know, each Teamster hub has a supplement that deals with just local issues. A lot of those have been agreed to and are ready for a vote. And in some cases, they may have voted on it. And in the, the, you know, the overall contract, it seems the sticking issue, only one left, is raising the pay for part-time workers. And as the Teamsters have been saying since that 1997 strike, uh, part-time America doesn't pay. So they need to raise those wages. UPS has the money. They've had record profits. They made a lot of money during the uh, COVID pandemic because a lot more shipping was going on. So they've got the money to pay. And I think it's in the interest of both the union and the, and the company to settle um, because, you know, they won't have a disruption. Uh, I heard from a driver I know in UPS uh, that they're losing accounts because uh Companies are deciding they better get to FedEx or Amazon or the post office because they might have an interruption in, in, in meeting their customers' needs if there's a strike. And if there is a strike, that's what happened in 97. People just started running from UPS, and UPS had to cry uncle within two weeks and got the best contract we've got in 100 years, or really since the master freight contracts, uh, last one probably in early 70s or late 60s. Um, so... Um, so the outstanding issue, UPS has the money. Um, I know that the workers, most of them don't want to go on strike. They want to keep getting their paychecks. There is strike pay. I don't know what it is. It's not as much as regular pay. That will tie them over. But, you know, people got mortgages and kids and, you know, ob obligations, responsibilities that they uh, don't uh, savor the prospect of, of struggling with. Um, and then if they do strike a deal, you know, it's a five-year deal with, you know, no strike clause. Um, so UPS knows what it's dealing with for the next five years. The Teamsters will have a good contract. And for UPS, it will help the Teamsters organize at Amazon and FedEx, which are non-union and are the main competitors to UPS. So it's in the interest of the company to make the Teamsters happy and have them focus on organizing FedEx and Amazon. So there's, you know, strong incentives for UPS to put a little more money on the table and resolve this last issue. And if I was betting, I think that's what's going to happen. But on the other hand, never underestimate the greed and hubris of corporate America. I mean, the CEO of UPS makes more in an hour than a driver who, you know, they work long hours, but they make almost $100,000 a year, uh, makes in an hour or makes in a year. The CEO in an hour, what the driver makes in a year. So, um, you know, but they're greedy and they they got, they think they're full of themselves. And maybe they think they can weather a UPS strike. I think they're wrong. I think the strike will really hurt UPS and the management will have, you know, kicked an own goal, you know, or shot themselves in the head or whatever metaphor you want to use. So um, I think uh, they'll, they'll settle, but if they don't, I'm going to be out there in the picket line with my brother Teamsters and sister Teamsters, and uh, we'll win the strike.
violated content boutique. It blows my mind that these drivers have to strike just to get air conditioning in this hot summer. They need compost to toilets in those trucks too. Uh, smack my head. You know, I've never heard Teamsters demand compost toilets. That's a thought. But uh, the air conditioning, I mean, what this driver told me is that, uh, yeah, that's great, but it's going to be in the new trucks. And it's going to take several years for the old trucks to wear out and be replaced. Uh, they will add fans to those existing trucks. And they said something about more vents, which I guess that means a little more air when you're driving. But uh, yeah, that was that's a big win, and uh, I think uh, you know the drivers appreciate it. They just wish it would be implemented faster than will happen in in real life. Via email, comments on the uprising in France. Yeah, this has been festering for a long time, and uh, I heard a. A statistic today uh, from BBC that said uh, killings by French police have increased fourfold in the last 12 years, and so the, the you know the racism and brutality toward uh, North African, African, and Arab Muslim immigrants uh, seems to be a real problem in France, and you know we can understand that because we got the same kind of problem in the United States. Um, and then in terms of the tactics of the uprising, you know, it seems like the, the ones that were doing the most damage in terms of vandalism, looting, arson, were really young teenagers, you know, 12 to 15, maybe 16. And uh, they're, they're angry, um, but uh, I don't think they helped their cause. The, the politics of fighting you know, the French uh, police brutality and racism uh, is something that, you know, the left parties and the labor movement have to really take up. And it's something they've neglected. And in, by neglecting it, they've opened space for the racists on the right, like Marine Le Pen and that other guy that's even worse, I forget his name right now, that uh, did pretty good in the last presidential, you know, first round. Um, so, this is something the left has really got to take up. And it's a bigger issue because of with climate change and these wars with millions of refugees from Syria and Ukraine and Afghanistan and Yemen. Uh, this issue of immigration is, is just going to get bigger. And we've got to have a way of uh, enabling people to move away from danger, whether it's climate or a repressive government and integrate into societies that can accommodate them, which you know are societies in the global north. And if we don't do that, we're just going to have more violence, and it's going to fuel the far right, which is going to scapegoat immigrants for all kinds of problems they don't cause. We see that here with the you know Trump Republicans, and uh, it's a huge problem, and it's one that the left has really got to have and develop, I think, you know, a clear program of, you know, that is pro-immigrant and, uh, you know, shows people that immigrants are not what's causing issues you have. It's corporate power and, you know, the profit system. So this is a, a huge issue. And I think France is just one manifestation. Another is all those refugees who died in that overcrowded uh, boat off the coast of Greece with the Greek Coast Guard right there. I mean, that's a crime. Um, and what's going on on our border is horrific as well. I mean, we're making people sit on the other side of the border in you know, makeshift camps waiting for their turn uh, to seek asylum, apply for immigration or whatever. And it's, uh, you know, so uh, we can point some figures of France, but you know, when you, what's the saying? When you point a finger and thumb points at you, whatever it is, you know, that's that's true for us. So it's a huge issue we've got to really deal with. And it's it's where the left's got to step up.
Dutch government just collapsed due to asylum disagreements. Yeah, that's another example. And that was where a center-right government was arguing over uh, how to be more or less restrictive, but restrictive, not uh, welcoming and uh, providing for the needs of immigrants. So, yeah, it's, like I said, a huge issue. And, you know, the left really has to come up with a, you know, a a program where the bumper sticker slogans indicate uh, what we're trying to do and indicate that uh, the immigrants are not the problem we're facing. It's climate change and corporate greed. And we got to deal with those problems to deal with the problems people are feeling in terms of economic and social insecurity. How Cyan Fire. Sorry if this was covered before I joined. Uh, what are Howie's plans for the Greens in this within the Greens in this next cycle and beyond? Uh, well, my plan is to be uh, as helpful as I can to uh, Cornell West campaign. Um, I'm just not in a position to run if I if I wanted to, but I I was drafted for the last round and. You know, it's a big it's a big job, and uh, I think once is enough, really, for anybody. Um, so that's one thing. Um, what I plan to be working on are the issues I've been working on uh, the last couple of years, and that is really promoting electoral reform in New York. Uh, we need to change the ballot access law, which is the most draconian in the country now. So, you know, I, I met with a state senator last week, and uh, we got more things. We're trying to get a fair ballot access law introduced and then debated early in the next session so it can affect 2024. Uh, I'm working and, and been writing about the need for and speaking on this podcast about the need for the Greens to really push for ranked choice voting, particularly proportional ranked choice voting in legislative bodies, uh, to open up the political system to political minorities like the Greens. And of course, and if we get in the system and we're part of the regular debate, we might not be a minority forever. Um, so I, those are that's a key thing. I'm working very hard on uh, supporting Ukraine's resistance to the Russian invasion. I really haven't been so involved in a foreign policy issue since the struggle against apartheid in South Africa, where I, you know, really got in the weeds there. And um, actually, I'm supposed to be providing my papers from that period to uh, an archive. At, I guess it's Michigan State, and I've been putting them off for years, and I just promised that I'm going to do it this month. So that's something I'm, I've got to do. I have a lot of projects like that that I've postponed and that I, that I want to take up. So um, I will be very active, but I won't be a candidate in all likelihood, although I'm willing to support some local candidates if we can get any here where I am. And uh, so that's that's about it. I'm going to be a I'm going to be an organizer, but not a candidate. Via email, response to the recent SCOTUS decisions. Yeah, I went into that in, in, in over almost half an hour last week in the opening. Um, but briefly, um, you know, I oppose what the Supreme Court has done, except in the case of rejecting that North Carolina lawsuit under the theory of the so-called independent state legislature, which headed off some really terrible uh, attacks on our democracy. But the affirmative action decision, uh, I, I, I cited, I think people should read uh, Justice uh, uh, Jackson's dissent. It's very powerful. And the LGBTQ decision, I mean, how did that woman even get standing when she hasn't even opened her business yet? And it's not about free speech. It's about serving people in public markets. And that decision blows a hole in anti-discrimination law. The next thing could be, you know, somebody could say my religion, like the Mormons used to have, uh, forbids me from serving or having, you know, black and white people sitting in the same restaurant or in going to the same hotel or all those old Jim Crow things. I mean, that's 
you know, probably what's going to come from some quarters. Um, what was the other big decision? Um, affirmative action, LGBTQ, independent legislature. There was a fourth decision. It's skipping my mind right now. Somebody will probably tell me in the chat. But uh, so um, what I also said was, you know, now is the time to push for expansion of the court. The Republicans stole basically three seats by denying Merrick Garland over a whole year in the last year of Obama's administration and then expediting the uh, uh, seating of uh, Amy Coney Barrett in the last months of Trump's uh, administration. Totally hypocritical on the part of uh, McConnell and the Republicans. So, you know, and the fact, as I pointed out, 16 of the last 20 Supreme Court justices have been appointed by Republicans, even though the Democrats have won the popular vote for uh, president and U.S. Senate every year since about 1988, except for 2004 uh, when Bush, you know, that was uh, everybody's rallying around the flag around the Iraq war at that point. Um, so, you know, the biases in our political system just make the Supreme Court not reflective of the people of this country. So I think they should add justices and then they should have uh, with a non-justice court, if it was 18 year uh, term limit and you staggered them, then every president, every four year term would have two appointments under normal circumstances. If somebody died or resigned, they would get an additional appointment. But that would undermine this gamesmanship that uh, McConnell played at the end of the Obama administration and then at the end of the Trump administrations. Um, and it would, uh, you know, make hopefully make the uh, ratification of appointments more about qualifications and temperament and so forth than raw politics, which it's become in you know, recent decades. Vicki Corden, they said no to student loan forgiveness. Yes, thank you. Yeah, again, that was where the court, and uh, I think it was Elena Kagan pointed this out in her dissent, you know, is really trying to substitute for Congress. Congress passes a lot of laws and asks the executive branch to write the regulations and implement it. And in this case, what Biden was doing was implementing uh, something he was probably authorized to do by the original legislation. But the Supreme Court stepped in under this doctrine called uh, majority questions, I think it's called, and said, well, uh, Congress should have detailed this uh, act rather than you drawing it out of the broader mandate of the law. And I think Kagan is right. The, Congress is, the Supreme Court is stepping in uh, to write laws when they're really supposed to just judge whether they're constitutional and legal in their own terms. So, yeah, another bad decision by a court that's, uh, you know, conservatives like to say they're strict constructionists. They're far from it. They're making it up as they go. Steve Welser. The SCOTUS appointment issue is where they'll give Cornell a very hard time race spoiling. Yeah, but I think Cornell's got an answer. You know, the, the Republicans have dominated Supreme Court appointments when the Democrats had the presidency and, and uh, like under Obama, and when they've had plenty of representation in the Senate and the House. And Biden, you know, uh, helped pave the way for Justice Thomas and before that Scalia. Uh, the Democrats are not good at fighting these hard right Republicans. So I think Cornell's got to come back. And of course, the general answer to the spoiler question is we've got the answer to the spoiler question. Get rid of the Electoral College and have a ranked choice, national popular vote for president. Then everybody can vote for who they want without worrying about helping their worst enemy. And we just get rid of the spoiler problem and then put it back on Biden. Will you join me, Cornell West, or whoever our candidate is? in calling for repealing the electoral college and having a national popular vote for president. I mean, turn it around on them. The spoiler issue gives us a platform and we should go on the offense with it.
Frankie Lee, is government doing anything more to combat climate change? No, it's not even a damn issue. I mean, Biden does some photo ops around, you know, some of this uh, new clean energy or, or electric car, uh, you know, developments, but it's not at the scale to reach what we really need to reach is zero emissions in a decade. Uh, that's got to be the U.S. contribution. And actually, if you consider climate reparations, you know, studies have shown, given how much we've emitted historically and uh, our capacity to provide reparations, we should be cutting our emissions by, the study came out when I was running for president from uh, a bunch of environmental groups. They estimated 195% cut in emissions. And you say, well, how are you going to do that? Well, most of it has to come outside our country. We have to provide the resources and technology to other countries in the world so they can cut their emissions. And that's how you get to 195% cut in our current emissions. That's the kind of thing we should be talking about. And instead, we've got this damn Inflation Reduction Act, which I call the Build Back Badly Act, which... Uh, you know, uh, green lights, a whole lot of new fossil fuel infrastructure, including new oil and gas drilling on public lands, even prioritizes that in the Gulf of Mexico ahead of uh, renewables and uh, permitting renewables on public land. And so uh, we're just not moving. And the goal is to get to, quote unquote, net zero emissions by 2050, way too late if you look at the science. And net zero is a way of saying uh, we'll continue burning fossil fuels and we'll just capture the carbon and stick it in the ground. And that technology is poorly developed. And to the extent we're doing it, we're sticking that carbon in oil wells to get every last drop of oil by putting more pressure down there. Uh, so it's really not reducing carbon in the atmosphere. It's extracting more uh, carbon fossil fuels to burn. So, uh, we're in a bad situation there, and I think the Greens, the Eco-Socialist Green New Deal, is the program, and we've just got to be shouting that from the rooftops. And I think that's a big part of our base for the 2024 election, young people in particular. We saw it with the Sunrise Movement, and now there's a new group called, I think it's called Climate Defiance. Young people are mad as hell. I mean, we got it when, you know, communications we got in the campaign in 2020. And afterwards, you know, they said, you know, we're sorry you didn't get more votes, but keep going because we we need an alternative to what we're getting from the two major parties. And the Eco-Socialist Green New Deal budget is in the in the chat. Um, the platform plank in the green platform, I think, is actually a more abbreviated. It's pretty long, but it's a better summary of what we're trying to do. The budget is quite detailed. Um, not that I'm not urging you to go look at it, but if we could get that link to that part of the green platform up there, uh, that would be good too, because I think that's a document people can use in their own campaigning. Vicki Corden, these billionaires need to pay higher tax rate in order to stop so much greed, which is off the charts. Absolutely. I mean, what happened to repealing the Trump tax cuts? You know, Obama, no. Yeah, the Democrats had a chance to do that when they had both houses of Congress with Biden as president, and they didn't do it. And the Bush tax cuts before that, that's what Obama failed to do. Um, and the Democrats, you know, they, they give you some rhetoric about making the rich pay their fair share, but when they have the chance to do it, they don't. And that's another issue where uh, it's very easy for a candidate like Cornell West and the rest of us running for down ticket offices, particularly federal office, uh, to make that point. And if we're running for state office as well, I mean, here in New York, I mean, that was my bread and butter when I ran for governor. You know, I basically had an alternative budget and said we can pay for all these great things that people are talking about, housing, health care and the Green New Deal. If we just actually, in my case, taxed the rich at the same rates Nelson Rockefeller did back in the early 70s. 
And it was ironically Democrats like Mario Cuomo that cut those high-end tax rates and also cut, we had a good financial transactions tax called the stock transfer tax that at this point is generating about $15, $16 billion a year. And New York actually collects it still, but it immediately rebates it to the stock traders. I mean, if it just kept that, it would have, uh, that's a lot of uh, affordable housing, social housing, preferably, you know, publicly owned housing. Um, It's uh, a lot of money for the schools, a lot of money for the things we need. And I would say healthcare, but in fact, if we had a single payer healthcare system, we'd actually be spending less than we are now between what we pay for the public programs like Medicaid, Medicare, child health care, and uh, our private insurance. So anyway, yeah, the tax issue is another one. Tax the rich is so popular. And, you know, the problem with the Democrats is they say it every once in a while, but they don't do it. And there's another issue where, you know, we can put their feet to the fire and uh, it's just waiting there for us to do that. B.D. Dimmitt, sorry to have forgotten, but what are the requirements to become an official candidate in the Green Party of the United States primary? I foresee the same attacks on West that you faced years ago, four years ago, when people didn't understand that didn't mean you were the nominee. Yeah, all my opponents in that race were saying I was rigging primaries, which actually there were three states where they were rigged against me. That's the truth of what happened there. But that myth is out there. It was the American Spectator, a right-wing newspaper, you know, put that out in a couple articles and it's picked up by some of these, you know, conspiracist post-left podcasters saying I stole the election. And there's actually some chatter about that with respect to Cornell West. In fact, some are saying I'm ringing it for Cornell West, which is absurd. What happens in the primaries is all the Greens are eligible to vote. Now, some states have state-run primaries, like uh, California and the District of Columbia. Uh, Others don't qualify that under their state election laws, so they have internal primaries. And in most states, they poll everybody who's registered in that party can vote in that primary. Um, And if they don't have uh, state-managed registration, everybody who registers with the party, you know, through their process, usually at their website or by you know, sign in a form, can vote in the primary. And you count the votes and you allocate the delegates proportional to each candidate's vote. Uh, It's pretty straightforward. And so that's the process uh, that Cornell West and everybody else who's running for the Green nomination will go through. And, uh, you know, there was a running tally kept by somebody on Wikipedia. That's where I always look to see where things were at. They, somebody was, you know, putting a lot of work into that. So uh, anyway, that's the process. And uh, I think, unfortunately, you know, when we were running the party leadership wanted to be so neutral, they they let people make all these spurious claims that got some traction in uh, marginal media, but enough to, you know, create a bit of a problem for the Green Party. Hopefully, you know, those accusations will be challenged by, you know, the the co-chairs of the party so they don't get a life they shouldn't have. All right. Well, it's been an hour, and I appreciate the questions. Um, and as I mentioned last week, I got some guests coming up. Uh, we just don't have dates set, but uh, we will soon. Uh, but there's plenty else to talk about. So uh, if I don't have a guest next week, we'll, we'll continue this conversation, and I'm sure there'll be news to discuss. And uh, I appreciate everybody being here, and uh, have a good week. Stay cool. It's going to be hot in most of the country. And, uh, you know, uh, get out there and organize. We got too many keyboard warriors and not enough organizers. We got to be talking to people beyond the usual suspects to build this movement and an alternative to the madness we're getting from the two party system. So, good luck, and we'll see you next week.